well, we just finished the holiday where we eat the mascot. <laughs> Hopefully, we've all recovered from our turkey coma, and uh, we are ready to eat. This time, God's Word. I hope to spread a feast bigger than the one you experienced on Thursday. It may even send you, uh, hopefully, into a gospel coma. So hopefully this exposition will help you sleep better tonight and live better tomorrow. This is week two of our Ecclesiastes series. Last week was vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything is, <laughs> everything is meaningless. One pastor said after preaching week one in Ecclesiastes that he feared all his people would spend the next week laying on the couch in their worn out sweatpants covered in Dorito crumbs and with empty beer cans yelling at the dog. It don't matter. It don't matter. <laughs> I see that didn't happen to you and I'm happy about that. I'm relieved. I'm glad you received the message. Jesus gives meaning to your monotony. One of the best things you can do for your soul is read biographies, especially Christian biographies. Apart from the Bible, they will be your most profitable books. They will enrich you like few things on earth. Biographies fly into us and light a fire. That's why we have so many recommended biographies on our website. But there's another genre closely associated called autobiographies. It's a book a person writes about his or her own life. And there are some notable ones in the Christian realm by George Mueller, Corey Ten Boom, and Elizabeth Elliot. On the secular side, uh, Benjamin Franklin and Nelson Mandela have some of the most popular autobiographies. We joke that there's a glaring problem with autobiographies. They usually reveal nothing bad about its writer except his memory. <laughs> Autobiography is probably the most respectable form of lying. And autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. Augustine is credited with history's first autobiography. He called it Confessions. Now his name is pronounced Augustine, if you're from the States, or if you want to sound really intelligent, Augustine. Augustine was the leading theologian between the Apostle Paul of Tarsus and John Calvin of France. Augustine lived in the 4th century and pastored in a small town in North Africa. He lived a, a wild and ruckus life before coming to Christ. He wrote about it in his autobiography, a lot of thievery in his early years, stealing pears from his neighbor's vineyard, which a bunch of rowdy boys, just to throw the pears to the pigs. To the chagrin of his mother Monica, his revelry and debauchery progressed as he aged. Stealing didn't do it for him anymore. So he became a gambler and an incessant partier. He then went to other extremes and became a womanizer. Multiple women, multiple encounters, even fathered a child out of a wedlock. He likely had a concubine, a woman there just to meet sexual needs. He was socially acceptable in his day. And it, seem, it seems that this foolish life couldn't satisfy his deep longings. So then, then he went to university. He would follow various philosophers. He would excel academically. As he mentions in his autobiography, even before his days of universities, even in the days of throwing pears as a child, um, he outshined his older brother, Navagius. And by the way, this is why you don't write a book about yourself. You write an autobiography and every chance you get, you take a shot at your brother. I was, I was a lot smarter than him. Mom knew it. My pagan dad knew it. They all knew it. 
You know what ended up happening to Augustine at university? The same thing that happened with his thievery and his gambling and his partying and his womanizing. It didn't satisfy. Augustine eventually became disillusioned with the philosopher's teaching. During certain periods in life, his confessions reveal he even considered suicide. Christ eventually redeemed Augustine. And in his autobiography, he records a prayer that I often pray on Sunday morning. It'll sound familiar to you. God, thou hast made us for thyself. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Augustine's confessions are so powerful because he did what many other autobiographies failed to do. He revealed his weakness, his failure, his sins. It revealed his restless heart. I tried partying, but it left me with a restless heart. I tried multiple intimate encounters, but it left me with a restless heart. I tried education, and it left me with a restless heart. Now, I actually do not believe Augustine gave us our first autobiography. I attribute that to a man who wrote one 1,000 years before. We actually have a copy of it in our Bibles. We call it Ecclesiastes. It is Solomon's Confessions. It was written about a thousand years before Christ, and it's the most honest autobiography you'll ever read. He takes us through a 40-year journey of his empty and shallow life, constantly running from one activity to another, attempting to build meaning and purpose. I want to point out from the text how he describes all of his pursuits. Notice chapter 1, verse 14. All is vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 1, verse 17. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. Chapter 2, verse 11. All was vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 2, verse 17. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 2, verse 26. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That little phrase ties the whole passage together. All of his activity is like chasing the wind. Trying to find meaning and purpose in life is like trying to catch the wind. And you can't catch the wind. I, I, I don't care if you have hands like Randy Moss or Jerry Rice. The wind just slips through your fingers. Have you ever seen kids blowing bubbles and trying to catch them? As soon as they touch the bubbles, they disappear. Our efforts to find lasting meaning and purpose in this fallen world are like a, a little child chasing bubbles. You reach out to grab satisfaction, and right when you think you have it, it disappears. This passage details Solomon running from bubble to bubble, thinking each will bring true happiness, lasting satisfaction. Not only do the bubbles pop, but he's left breathless, bent over, gasping for air. Augustine's confessions reveal he had a restless heart. Solomon's confessions reveal he had tired legs. This text is for those who have restless hearts and tired legs. Those who are still on the journey for true meaning in life. The unsatisfied, the unhappy, the depressed, the miserable. Have your pursuits left you sad? Your pursuit to be a wife, a mother, 
Your chase to be a success at your job. Your chase to have people respect you. Let's begin this autobiography and see where Solomon ran to find meaning and purpose in life. It's the longest preaching section in the book, but I had to deal with it all together because it's one big unit. This autobiography contains four parts. Each part is a location where Solomon runs chasing after the wind. Part one, university library. University library. Solomon says in verse 13, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I applied my heart. That's another way of saying I devoted my life. Devoted your life to doing what? To seek, which is the Hebrew word for questioning and inquiring. And to search out, which is the verb for exploring. The same verb is used of the 12 Hebrew spies in Numbers chapter 13 who went to spy out the land of Canaan to take a, a, a good look at the topography, the people, and the military strength. These spies weren't just casually walking around. They were deep in the land, watching the people in the cities and the enemy armies, and they were taking notes. Solomon went deep into study in the university library. Augustine ended his search in the university, but Solomon begins his search in the university. He learns from every professor and passes every exam. He studies philosophy. He begins to understand how and why he understands. He hired experts in every field of learning, natural and physical science, atmospheric, biological, geological, physics and astronomy, mathematics, botany, oceanography, zoology, medical science, and in every type of engineering you could imagine. He aced all of his AG classes, his ag classes, and mastered economics. He searched, the text says, by wisdom, which is commendable. But it turns out not to be divine wisdom. God is mentioned for the first time in verse 13, but not in a worshipful sense. It's in an accusing sense. Solomon isn't praying. He isn't quoting the inspired words of Moses. He isn't being guided by the wisdom of God. He's being guided by the wisdom of man. The intuition, the perception of a brilliant mind with street smarts and amazing observational and analytical skills. The Bible records the depths of his wisdom in 1 Kings 4. It says, For Solomon was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Haman and Calcol and Darda, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear Solomon. Solomon is essentially the most brilliant man alive. But notice where all of that education and brilliance landed him. Solomon said in verse 16 of our text, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. 
Solomon says, human wisdom and education can't supply the meaning of life. This was the conclusion of Leonard Wolf, the, the British publisher and political thinker who wrote more than tw 20 books on literature, politics, and economics. He was brilliant, educated at Cambridge. His writing influenced the creation of the League of Nations and later the United Nations. He was awarded, quoted, acclaimed, and applauded. But here's what Wolf said after spending a lifetime in a university library. I quote, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books. I have therefore to make a confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. End quote. Wolf, like Solomon and Augustine, confessed that they looked for meaning in life by learning, but were left devastated. The bubble popped. People with doctoral degrees can be just as unsatisfied as someone who never made it out of the eighth grade. Let me apply this. Friends, do you think education holds the answers? <laughs> well, I'm going to get into the best schools and achieve the best results, and I'm going to learn and learn and learn, and I'll have more degrees than Fahrenheit. I know how to study. I know how to learn. I will be happy. With my smarts and my wisdom, I'm going to make sense of the world. Really? Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. No matter how hard you try, there are dilemmas you can't straighten out. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The great philosopher, Biggie Smalls, <laughs> said, more money, more problems. Another great philosopher, Solomon, says, Mo wisdom, mo problems. Some of you are brilliant, very smart, but you don't know God. You have a master's, but you don't know the master. The wisdom of this world is a dead end. Becoming smarter is not the pathway to becoming happier. Have you thought about the fact that if the solution to frustration and unhappiness was education, then the happiest place on the planet would be a university campus? How's that working out? If it were true, the happiest people would be professors. Plato was wrong. Plato, the philosopher, not the squishy stuff. Plato was wrong. He believed perfection was possible through the educating of the human intellect. Solomon had already figured out that Plato's theory was incorrect 500 years earlier than Plato lived and had written the conclusion in his autobiography. Listen to Augustine and Solomon. Education will never bring you true meaning, deep purpose, or lasting satisfaction. Solomon walks out of the university library and he says, This isn't it. I need to look somewhere else. So he walks down the hill and he turns on Pleasure Street. Verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. 
in verses 1 through 11, it's like Solomon is walking down Pleasure Street. And he's going into different shops. On the streets of hedonism, there are seven shops and Solomon visits them all. Are you familiar with the term hedonism? A hedonist lives for pleasure. He just lives it up. Hedonism says pleasure is the highest good and the only value in life is experiencing it. Let me give you a hedonist song. B.B. King sang these words. Hey everybody, let's have some fun. You only live but once and when you're dead, you're done. So let the good times roll. I don't care if you're young or old, get together and let the good times roll. Solomon is singing, let the good times roll as he walks down Pleasure Street. This is what hedonists sing. This is what Augustine sang when he walked down Pleasure Street. The first shop on Pleasure Street is what I'm calling the comedy club. It's verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. Solomon immersed himself in comedy. He pursued the pleasure of laughter. He heard the first century equivalent of Rodney Dangerfield and Kevin Hart and Chris Farley and Chris Rock. Many comedians historically have been some of the saddest people in the world. And some of them have taken their own lives. Like Robin Williams. Laughter can momentarily distract us from real pain. But it cannot overcome it. Comedy can entertain us, but it can't redeem us. Bob Newhart and Eddie Murphy can't do for you what Jesus can. And there's nothing wrong with having fun or laughing, which is good medicine for the soul, as the scripture says. There is a laughter that glorifies God. Jesus is not a joy killer. Psalm 126, our mouths are filled with laughter. Jesus gave us that. But this is different. We need more than comedy to make sense of the deep things of life. We like comedy movies and passing around funny YouTube clips. But comedy cannot provide the basis for life. No one ever walked out of Dumb and Dumber stunned into silence and contemplating life. <laughs> Superficial laughs might distract you from pain, but it can't overcome it. Solomon walks out of the country club. Out of the comedy club. And he says, this isn't it. I know they're all in there laughing. But this isn't it. So then he walks into the second shop, which is what I'm calling a, a classy wine tasting. Verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now the phrase here, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, indicates Solomon didn't get drunk. Therefore, he was a self-controlled connoisseur of fine wine. He drank out of a crystal champagne glass while watching the opera. He's a refined man, a sophisticated pleasure seeker. But this didn't do it for him either. So notice the next word in the verse, and, and had to lay hold on folly. It seems Solomon tried both experiences, sophistication and inebriation. He left the wine tasting, and the third shop he entered was a dive bar. He laid hold on folly like a drunk frat boy wasting away in Margaritaville. You see, there's a, there's a downtown view of pleasure, and then there's an uptown view of pleasure. Contentment, purpose, satisfaction isn't found in either place. 
Solomon leaves the dive bar and he says, this isn't it. So he goes to the fourth place on Pleasure Street, and that's what I'm calling the construction site. Notice verse 4. Solomon says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Solomon was an architect, a builder, a developer. All of these New York City skyscraper developers, they pale in comparison to Solomon. He had a huge workforce of around 30,000 men, according to 1 Kings 5. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon, another house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. He also built cities, Hazer, Megiddo, Gezer, Beth Horon, Balak, Tadmor, in the wilderness. He devoted 13 years to his largest building project, his house. It would make the White House look like an outhouse. His home had precious stone-studded doors from Africa, spices from Arabia, sandalwood and ivory statues from India, cedar ceilings from Lebanon. Like the Queen of Sheba before you, you would have your breath taken away. Today, Solomon's face would be featured on the cover of Architectural Digest, pictures of his home's exterior, and you keep flipping and you'll find the interior. And then his wine cellar, which is bursting forth with wine from his lavish multi-acre vineyard. Does anyone build large houses today with the intent to make themselves happy? It will not satisfy. Verse 5, Solomon says, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Solomon uses language that has echoes of Eden. He's trying to recreate paradise lost, but with no forbidden fruits because, remember, he's building on Pleasure Street. The phrase, every kind of fruit tree in them, is used three times in the Genesis account. Same phrase. Genesis 1.11, Genesis 1.29, Genesis 2.9. To this day, we all long to return to that garden paradise. What, what is it with us about our little flower pots and rose bushes and fruit trees and fish ponds? It's a faint echo in our hearts of paradise lost. It's the longing in our hearts for creation to be restored. Solomon tried to build Eden. But you can't manufacture what only comes from the hand of God. There, there was a pleasure in that garden that Solomon will never find on Pleasure Street. He continues, verse 6, I made myself pools with which to water the forest of growing trees. These were like small lakes in the desert used to irrigate his created forests. He built forests. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. His personal staff numbered around 35,000 people. Uh, the next time you visit Rupp Arena or Thompson Bowling Arena, remember Solomon would need 10,000 more seats just to house his staff. And they're all dressed in fabulous costumes. Solomon had farm animals, hunting animals, exotic animals. 
The word herds refer to large farm animals like cattle and horses, while flocks indicate smaller livestock like sheep and goats. He had his own private hunting land with every animal imaginable, deer, gazelle, roebucks, fattened fowl. He had all types of exotic animals as pets, like apes and peacocks and tigers. You may be thinking, Kyle, man, it would be really nice to have a maid to clean my house and a chef to cook my meals and a landscaper to keep up with my grass and my gardens and a stylist to do my makeup and choose my clothes each day. Solomon had all of that and he said, this isn't it. I've got to look somewhere else. So his next stop, the fifth, is the bank. Notice verse 8. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. According to historians and biblical accounts, in today's economy, Solomon brought into his royal coffers around $1.8 billion a year. He had so much money that silver was as common as stone. 2 Chronicles 9.27 tells us. He treated Benjamins like we treat pennies. This past week, Elon Musk just overtook Bill Gates to become the second richest man alive. Amazon's Jeff Bezos is still number one. Solomon leaves the bank and he's saying, Gates, Musk... Bezos, no amount of money can give the soul what it needs. So he moves on to the next little shop on Pleasure Street, the sixth. It's what I call entertainment. Notice as verse 8 continues, Solomon says, I got singers, both men and women. Now, how did Solomon listen to music? Solomon didn't need Spotify or Pandora. He had Ed Sheeran living in his mansion. He'd just say, hey, Ed. I want you to play that song. You know what you're talking about. The what? The perfect song. Play the perfect song. And then that little redhead would, would do it. Christmas time? Not a problem. The Michael Buble tour bus just stays parked outside of Solomon's palace. Solomon's love for music did come naturally. His father, David, loved music. It would calm him. He sang the world's most theologically rich songs. Some of them recorded for us in our Bible. But Solomon wasn't listening to his daddy's records. He didn't listen to songs to worship. He used songs to party. And Solomon threw some epic parties. 40,000 deep in his palace. Live music, dancing, hundreds of feet of table covered with the world's most tasty food. Kimchi, pecking duck, poutine, fried chicken. Can I get an Amen. Let me apply this. Uh, Americans live for the pleasure of entertainment. We like our sporting events, our concerts, our TV. The average American watches four hours of TV a day. Our phones, we spend an average of three hours a day on them. But friend, you can't be entertained into a contented soul. Solomon learned it. And he walked out. The last little shop on Pleasure Street is called Intimacy. 
Many of you have walked with Solomon and Augustine into this little shop. Solomon describes it like this in verse 8. And many concubines. Many concubines. Since Solomon is living the lifestyle of the rich and foolish, it's no surprise that it led to sexual perversion. He had supermodels dangling off of each arm. He's the first century Hugh Hefner. Bunnies everywhere. Or the Old Testament Hugh Hefner. Bunnies everywhere. Solomon could out locker room boast anyone, including the basketball legend Wilt Chamberlain, who famously claimed to have been with 20,000 women. Solomon eventually settled down to have just a mere 700 wives and 300 concubines. You thought Augustine was bad. Drake, the Canadian rapper and huge Toronto Raptors fan, said once in an interview, he said, there was a point, there was a point in my life where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after intimacy, I'd know it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I'd convince myself to do it again. And so he'd run after another one. But Drake says he knew it wasn't working. Solomon says, Drake, if you read my autobiography, you would have known that that just leaves you with a restless heart and tired legs. Now, Solomon writes verse 9, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> so I became great and surpassed all who were before me. Solomon basically says, I'm the most popular guy on the planet. Check out my Instagram and my Facebook. It's packed with people. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. The verb in verse 11, consider, literally means to face someone or to face something right in the eye. Solomon is facing up to his situation, seeing his life as it really is. And he wants us to know it's, it isn't pretty. Two quick rapid-fire applications here before I move on to part three. First, you must learn to see earthly pleasures rightly. You must learn to see earthly pleasures rightly. To deconstruct them and to de uh, de-mythologize, what's the word I'm trying to say? Mythologize? Mythologize? Where's Hertz? Hertz is gone on his family. He's always de-mythologize. Anyhow, we're de... I don't know. I don't know. It's all right. It's all right. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. They can't give you what Christ can give you. Ever. Ever. You keep squeezing juice out of those pleasures, and the juice will just turn sour. The raise, the new car, it will all fade. Even though Solomon played out every one of his fantasies in real life, it wasn't fulfilling. Today on your phone, you have the ability to gather an entire harem within minutes. Don't you dare walk into that little shop. The second rapid-fire application is this. Pleasure is only safe. It is only safe 
when God is there. Everything I've showed you so far is meaningless hedonism. Pleasure-seeking that leads to emptiness. But there is, as John Piper constantly pushes, there is a, a Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism claims that the Christian life should be the pursuit of maximum pleasure in God. Or as he says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. Solomon walks out of Pleasure Street and he says, that's not it. I need a change in life. I'm going to do something radical. I'm going to flip my life around. I'm going to go down Dignity Drive. Solomon lived a foolish life and now he tries to live a wise life. The honorable, the sensible, the respected life. The Hebrew word for wisdom here is a broad term that demands context uh, for the right nuance. But notice verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. I want you to notice that this life of dignity, it fell Solomon as well. Notice verse 14, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also? Why then have I been so very wise and said in my heart that this also is vanity? Both the wise and the fool share the same fate. Death is the great equalizer. Why exert all this energy to be wise if the fool and the wise end up in the same way? Six feet under. Alexander the Great found Diogenes, his famous philosopher friend, standing alone in a field, looking intently at a large pile of bones. When Alexander asked him what he was doing, Diogenes gave this reply. I'm searching for the bones of your father Philip but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Whether you are wise or a fool, death will bring an end to every advantage in life. And then notice verse 17. Excellent life verse here. Put it on a mug. Put it on a t-shirt. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after win. But those of you, you rule followers... Keeping all the rules and making good practical decisions apart from God is still meaningless. Some of you have turned over a new leaf, you're on a better path, and you're still not fulfilled. All of your leaf turning was without Christ. Being a decent man with morals and principles is not enough to bear the weight of your soul. Solomon leaves Dignity drive, unsatisfied. And he goes, to, he goes to his workstation. His workstation. He used to spend all his days partying. Now he spends them pouring into work. How did he feel about his work? Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. That's a good word. My work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Provan, a scholar, calls this section the confessions of a workaholic. You check your emails on your phone all night. 
You toss and turn and sleep evades you while you stress of the next project. Now, a work ethic is a wonderful thing. A work ethic is a wonderful thing, and our work ethic is a great strength, and by and large come to us from biblical origins. But the evil one can use even good things against us if we're trying to find meaning in our work alone. If we're trying to find significance and satisfaction in our work, we will grow to hate it. The word toil here is used sometimes to refer to work, but in other places, generally speaking, it refers to daily responsibility. It could be mothering, keeping the home. I hated all my mothering. I hated all my keeping the home. And it can be more broadly applied to those general quests that people embark upon. Whether it's politics, or social reform, or something else. Not just the way someone provides for their family. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that, it, that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Someone could come after you and change everything you've done. Now, those of you that are, that are up in years, uh, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, you're thinking about this. You're thinking exactly what Solomon was thinking in verse 19. Who knows whether someone will take everything I've worked for and be wise with it or a fool with it. Someone could come after you and change everything you've done. Let me ask you a question. Would Thomas Jefferson recognize the Democratic Party? Would Abraham Lincoln recognize the Republican Party if he were alive today? Your successors can change everything. And Solomon is thinking about that. Solomon's worst fears would be realized when his foolish son, Rehoboam, loses ten twelfths of his father's kingdom. Solomon pushes his chair back from his workstation and he stands up and he says, I can't do this anymore. It does nothing for me now. And so where are we left? Well, we're left with two final overarching applications. I'll give these to you on the screen. Application number one. You, like Solomon and Augustine after him, will likely try many cheap substitutes in your search for meaning and satisfaction. You, like Solomon and Augustine after him, will likely try many cheap substitutes in your search for meaning and satisfaction. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's just very likely. You will live in bitter disillusionment breathlessly running from one thing to the next, looking for satisfaction until you finally walk out of each shop and say, that doesn't do it for me anymore. Or in the words of Solomon, you'll spend a lifetime chasing after the wind. People will often make sudden shifts in their lives in an attempt to find happiness. Have you noticed that? Sudden shifts. It's like the Little Caesars commercial where the guy is having trouble ordering pizza online. And he's so frustrated, he just screams to his family, We're going to live off the grid! And, and now they live in an Amish-like existence with no technology. And his wife says, Well, you should have just gotten a hot and ready pizza from Little Caesars. To which the husband excitedly yells, That's it! We're going back on the grid! This is us. People think to themselves that if life were simpler or more elaborate, 
they would be happy. As a pastor, I see this all the time. All the time. Well, well, we do this new type of parenting. Oh, this, you, you don't know anything about this, Kyle. You're, you're too old. It's just discovered recently. I'm 34. This new type of parenting, like I've been doing the same type they've been doing 2,000 years. I'll go with historical, anyhow, it's chronological snobbery. Let's move on. Well, we do this new type of parenting. Well, we do this new miracle diet. All the ones throughout history, they were so terrible. I don't know how anyone lived, but this is the one. Or we do this new fitness regime. Like, this is it. I, I don't know how they did it without it. Well, I'm, I'm going to go to this job. Well, I'm, I'm going to move to this state. Well, I'm going to go over here. No, 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 no. I'm going to go over there. And they'll try it for a while. And then they'll run to something else. Try it for a while and then run to something else. And they have restless hearts and tired legs. In the 1600s, there was a kind of freak show genius who was a mathematician, philosopher, theologian. He's the kind of guy you want to hang around. His name was Blaise Pascal. And he's famous for this quote. He said, all men seek happiness without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all tend to this end. It's the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. For some of you, your chase will take you down a hedonistic lifestyle. Something similar to Augustine and Solomon. And you will find that those bubbles pop. And you will leave saying... That doesn't satisfy. Then God will do for you what he did for those who came before you. Your eyes will be open to the beauty of Christ. And he will reach down and pull you out of the mire and redeem your wretched soul. And then you will likely spend days wondering. Why did God allow me to visit all those sinful shops? Well, I think Charles Bridges helps us here. He says, we are permitted to taste the bitter wormwood of earthly streams in order that, standing by the heavenly fountain, we may point our fellow sinners to the world of vanity we have left and to the surpassing joy and delights of the world we have newly found. Solomon, throughout this unit, these verses, is using a speech technique, a speech tactic. He uses it a lot in his autobiography. It's what I call a chase technique. He's saying, it's not this, or this, or this, or this, or this, but it's this. And when you've found this, when you've found Christ, you'll have no need to travel down Pleasure Street again. <laughs> I read this historical account where Augustine was walking after his conversion and one of his former lady friends saw him and began yelling running after him Augustine it is I Augustine it is I and he tried to keep walking like he did not hear her but she pursued him Augustine it is I Augustine it is I finally he turned around and said yes but it is no longer I 
If you're truly born again, you can resist the evil pleasures of this world. You don't have to run after them. You can resist them. And here's how I know. Because everything Solomon pursued, Jesus was tempted by and resisted. Application number two. When God is God, you can enjoy a ball game, kimchi, a good joke, intimacy, books, learning, and your work because you're not looking for meaning in it. When God is God, you can enjoy a ball game, kimchi, a good joke, intimacy, books, learning, and your work because you are not looking for meaning in it. Now this is important. I, I, I want you to hear me. When you turn to God, begging Him to save you in the name of Jesus, something very surprisingly surprising happens. The very pleasures that once failed to satisfy you now help you to find even greater joy in the goodness of God. Yeah. We taste God's pleasure when we design homes and other buildings. Provided we build them for the good of other people and the glory of God and not just for our own grandeur. We taste God's pleasure when we go for a walk in the park and plant a beautiful garden. Eric Liddell, the, the runner, said to his sister Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel like Liddell every Sunday. When I preach, I feel his pleasure. I'm partaking of one of the good gifts he's given me. And you can say that about your work in Christ. When I'm doing this, I feel his pleasure. Because you're not looking for that thing to give you ultimate worth. Buddhists say pleasure is bad. God says pleasure is good. But you can only truly experience it through me. What does the world have to offer restless hearts and tired legs? Well, that's easy. University libraries, Pleasure Street, Dignity Drive, and work stations. What does the creator of the world have to offer restless hearts and tired legs? <sighs> Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What you need is what Solomon and Augustine found. You need Christ. Stop the chasing. Find Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.